Rockland World Radio. All right, hello and welcome to another edition of New York Update. I'm Jake Jacobs, a New York City school teacher. I'm concerned with education and the state of New York and news and politics and what have you. Uh, we are online at nyupdate.org, and you can catch us live Tuesdays at 7 p.m. and rocklandworldradio.com. So since we last spoke, we have a couple of headlines to go over, but we also are going to be playing a interview uh, from Assemblyman Harvey Epstein, who is the assembly sponsor of a bill that's going to enable opt-out parents to receive notifications every year when the uh, standardized testing season comes around. This bill would give parents, it would give them a notification uh, either by email or by a letter uh, or a note that goes home with the kids. But basically school districts would have the School districts would have the responsibility to inform parents that they have the right to opt out of standardized tests. Of course, this is the big issue that we've been following. So we're going to play the interview, which was conducted on May 10th with Assemblyman Harvey Epstein. The bad news is there's a little, it's, it's a little tricky to hear. It was a bad phone connection. In the meantime, let's start with our education headlines. And we're going to start with this story. Uh, we have a tweet that says, Tangible results. Citing devastating report on millions wasted in the federal charter school grants, the House Dems slashed this year's federal charter school grant program by 20%. Because the Democrats now run the House of Representatives and Nancy Pelosi is the speaker, they actually put a little dent in Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump's charter school funding program. They've had a program that actually dates back through the Obama years where the federal government just kind of heaps a whole bunch of money on charter schools. And Network for Public Education, that is the organization founded by Diane Ravitch, they came out with a report that showed that about a third of the money that was allocated for charter schools in this federal grant program was absolutely wasted and went right down the toilet bowl. And if I had a toilet bowl sound effect, now is when I would... Thank you. A lot of the money went, in fact, a billion dollars of this money over a number of years, and this goes back into the Obama administration, was flushed down the toilet because it went to charter schools that either never opened or closed quickly after they did open, leaving families in the lurch. And so this report came out and, you know, it was really just citing Department of Education's own statistics and own data, right? So this is really just out there and no one really put it together. Once this was presented to the Senate and to the House, uh, it was thrown in Betsy DeVos's face in live hearings. She accused NPE of being anti-charter people as, a, you know, as opposed to just, you know, fair arbiters of the Department of Education's own facts and research and data. And so uh, what the House did was they shaved 20% uh, of this year's appropriation. The appropriation is was originally for $500 million in federal grants that were going to go to charter schools in all 50 states. And they shaved that down by $100 million to $400 million, which is 
20%. And we, for that, we can thank House members uh, Roseanne DeMauro, who is on the House Education Committee, and just said, you know what, let's just prune this back a little bit. If they could have done more. They could have shaved it down to half, uh, but this was kind of like a, you know, a little, a little cutback. Next headline. Here on May 9th, we spoke about Mary Ellen Elia, the commissioner of education in New York State, being ratioed in person. Now, you know what it means to be ratioed, right, Richard? Yes. Yes, so that's when you... It's not good. It's not good. When you put something online and on Twitter and you're bragging about this or that, and then all the comments are negative, and there are more negative comments than positive comments, that means you've been ratioed. Ratioed in person means that when you're showing up to a hearing or an event uh, or speaking engagement, the people there in attendance are all against you. And that is what happened to uh, New York State Education Commissioner Mary Ellen Elia. She showed up at the NYSA Representative Assembly, and that's where the State Teachers Union is um, having all their delegates vote on resolutions. Uh, they're making all their rules for the next year. They're doing all their housekeeping work. And Mary Ellen Elia showed up to try to defend what's been going on with the testing regime. And there was a lineup. There's actually a photo of this. There was a line of teachers that queued up to address the uh, commissioner and demand action to correct the tests. But basically they said, uh, whenever we give you feedback, you change our information and, and make it public so it's stuff that we didn't say. It's good to see that Mary Ellen Ilya is under the gun. Uh, some people are speculating of uh, some principals that I know, New York State principals, m multiple principals and superintendents have been speculating that she might be on the way out because of what happened this particular testing season. But we'll see. Uh, we don't know right now. Okay, and so uh, ratioed in person means that she showed up, tried to, to defend her program to the state teachers union, and they, they let her have it. They just teed off on her one person after the other. Okay, um, this is a little story that was actually tweeted out by Richard Engel, who is the um, MSNBC foreign correspondent. Um, it's a story that was on... NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Students at a Rhode Island school district who owe money on their lunch accounts will get jelly sandwiches until their debt is paid. And that is the Warwick Public Schools District in Rhode Island. Um, yeah, you know, uh, you know, they, they don't have money, and so you're punishing people uh, for not having money. Why don't they just give them you know, the chicken patty like everybody else gets or the cardboard pizza that everybody else gets or the mystery meat or that Jamaican meat patty looking thing. So, yeah. All right. Um, next, we go to May 10th. Um, that was last Friday. I attended a, um, a town hall with presidential candidate Amy Klobuchar. And I was sitting just not even 15, 20 feet away from her and Randy Weingarten and the head of the Yonkers Teachers Union. And I, I actually got to ask the first question to her. Um, Randy Weingarten picked on me because I stuck my hand up decisively early. <laughs> um, so let's play the audio uh, for that. And uh, I believe I will have to do a little bit of... Uh, connecting change right here. Sorry. You're going to hear a little rumbling for a moment. Okay. 
and um, this is going to be um, Randy Weingarten calling on me, me asking a question to uh, Senator from Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar, who would be like a really kick-ass candidate uh, for president if we didn't have like 19 or 20 other people. But uh, let's hear. Um, this gentleman here. Hi. And, and do us a favor. Yes. Say your name and try to make it into a question. Yes. <laughs> uh, Sam and I will basically cut you off. Um, my name's Jake Jacobs. I teach art at uh, Bronx Park Middle School in the Bronx. And my question is uh, about charter schools. Can you tell us what your position is? And do you um, support the NAAC, NAACP uh, moratorium on charter schools? Okay. So I know um, that you have some charter school issues in New York going on right now. Um, and so let me talk about just my views nationally. Um, I think that we must make it very clear that public schools are the mainstay of our education Have charter schools. We have some in our state. Um, we have some all over the country. Uh, they have got to have high accountability standards. So I share the position of AFT on this. Um, and one thing that we've done in our state, in Minnesota, I don't think it's a surprise to you because we're such a strong public education state, we have set those high standards. We're not perfect, uh, but they are much higher uh, than they are in a lot of other states. And I think that's the only way uh, you can have charter schools at work uh, if you have incredibly high standards. But I think the most important thing to remember is that we need strong public schools that's the mainstay of our system. I am against private school vouchers. Let me make that very clear. Um, and we are not going to be able to educate our kids if we don't put our money into our public schools, and that's where they belong. Okay, so uh, that was her answer, and uh, it sounds like a great answer, um, but actually, a lot of people on my side um, uh, feel like she does she does not go far enough, and that she needs she needed to say, uh, "I'm against charter schools in every situation." What you heard her say is that if there are charter schools, they have to be held to high accountability standards. She did also say that she is in line with the AFT position on charter schools. And, uh, you know, that position is that charter schools should exist and that it's okay for them to exist as long as they have, you know, these high levels of scrutiny on them, uh, which they're not getting currently. So, you know, a lot of people say that that's, that's weak tea, uh, particularly Diane Ravitch, who is kind of like the de facto leader of the anti-education reform movement, would say, why do we need two systems especially when one of them is being funded by billionaires and high-tech fake philanthropists and everything, especially after the abuse, the fraud, the cherry-picking, the suspensions and the expulsions and the, the unofficial expulsions called counseling out, all the complaints. So, Amy Klobuchar, what happened at this uh, town hall, and it, there was about maybe, I would say, 70 or 80 teachers there, maybe 100 it was at the Yonkers High School, uh, where I used to teach, actually, for a year. Um, I taught at the middle school, which is in the same building. And another person in the crowd 
followed up on the question. So let's listen to the follow-up now because they were not satisfied with Senator Klobuchar's answer. And then let me take the lady who I was going to call on over here. My name is Chris. He was asking about charter schools, and in your answer, it's just kind of a two-part question. Is You mentioned public education. Do you include public charter schools as part of public education? Just well, to clarify. I just, I include charter schools that meet high standards, that have the right to organize, but right? Do you, do you um, think, when you answered, you said public schools, or do you include charter schools as part of your public Only education? if they meet the standards and only if so they allow teachers to organize schools. and those kinds of things. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so um, I wanted to, the second part of my question was... And when um, I said invest in public education, I was saying I would like to have the money with the mainstay of our schools, which is these public schools, all right? I don't think you see me focusing on charter schools when you look back in my career okay. um, and you look at my life. It has all been about these kinds of public schools, all right? Um, I've noticed a lot of stories in the news about the failure of private companies doing public work, for example, that recent story about privatized military housing and prisons and stuff like that. And um, are you willing to put a halt to privatization in education? through charter schools which are not accountable and how they educate our children or use taxpayer funds. So I know this is a little bit of an overlap. Thank you. I, I think I've made my position clear on this, that I want to put the money into uh, the public schools and I don't think that we should have charter schools uh, that are not accountable and don't meet high standards. And we've had a number of them that don't meet those standards. So. There you saw, it was kind of circular, a repetitious. She kept asking, but the clarification that she needed was that when Amy Klobuchar said that I think we should put our money in public education, um, of course, the charter schools consider themselves public schools. They sometimes even call themselves public charter schools. And so she wanted to make sure that there was no wiggle room there. Senator Klobuchar did add in that she only would support charter schools that allowed their teachers to organize. And so that's a really big difference because, you know, that means they can unionize if they so desire. And so it was great to hear that follow-up question. But basically, it's the same answer. Uh, she feels charter schools can go on doing what they're doing as long as they meet the, the scrutiny and the expectations. And I guess that would vary from state to state. So, you know, you might have one criteria in Mississippi and another one in Massachusetts. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, that was Amy Klobuchar on charter schools. They will be able to update her, her position now because um, NPE and a lot of other uh, national organizations have been trying to find out how all of the candidates feel about charter schools, and they actually had no information in the database about Amy Klobuchar. So now they have at least something to go on. She's for charter schools. I mean, and it's kind of like the NAACP position. NAACP said that there should be a moratorium on any charter schools that cannibalize resources, that uh, hurt the districts for the public schools, that don't uh, meet the accountability standards, that don't have financial oversight, you know, all that. It's not a, it's not a terrible position. It's, it's definitely an upgrade from Obama and Bush and Hillary and... Cuomo. Okay, next story is Money Talks in White Plains. There is a, quote, textbook case of wealthy developers and entrenched political machines appointed elections judges using frivolous challenges to knock a first grade teacher, Kat Bresler, off the ballot. 
And here's an article that was published in The Intercept. I just saw this yesterday. Kat Bresler is, is an education activist like I am. She's a first grade teacher. She teaches in the Bronx like I do. She teaches pretty close to me, actually. Uh, but she lives in White Plains, and she has been running for White Plains Town Council. Uh, she actually ran for Shelley Meyer's seat in the state senate uh, special election. She lost to Shelley Meyer in what they have like a delegate only primary, and you have to be a Westchester County delegate that lives in the state senate district, and then all those people, which is hundreds of people, got to decide who gets on the Democratic ballot for the election, and they decided on Shelley Meyer, who at that point was a sitting assemblywoman, and so Kat Bresler is a first grade teacher coming out of nowhere. She didn't have much of a chance. Uh, now she's running for town council in, in this November's election. It's an off-year election. And what happened, it's pretty dicey. So somehow she got coverage of this. And you would think that, you know, a town council race would never attract the attention of anybody on the national media. But, you know, The Intercept is Glenn Greenwald's paper. But, you know, it's a pretty consequential blog. The reporter is Aida Chavez. What they're explaining is that um, New York's political bosses have been uh, clinging to power for a long time by using complicated election laws to keep primary challengers off the ballot so that they can never even be voted on in the first place. And there were laws written for just that purpose. The laws are enforced, I'm reading now, in turn by judges appointed by and intertwined with the very machine they are ostensibly keeping in check. A textbook case is unfolding this week in White Plains, Westchester County, where New York's Democratic machine is trying to force a progressive common council candidate off the ballot. Kat Bresler is a public school teacher, but the role that has her in the machine's sights goes back to the 2018 midterms. She was a lead organizer for the primary campaign of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And they fear that if she can get a foothold in the uh, White, White Plains uh, town council, she is a potential threat to run for Congress in the district herself. To get on the ballot on the Democratic Party line, Bresler had to turn in a minimum of about 700 signatures. She submitted about 1,200 signatures, and then the Board of Elections found 780 of them to be valid. Her opponent then objected to the signatures, and Westchester County Supreme Court Judge Sam Walker threw out dozens of them after comparing the signatures collected from people on the street to ones on their voter registration cards, some of which are up to 40 years old. Walker also refused the campaign, uh, refused uh, to allow a, a handwriting expert to take a look, right, which would have been better. Kat Bresler is campaigning to get on this town council on a platform of affordable and low-income housing. And she's been endorsed by the Working Families Party, New York Labor Unions, which I believe would be nice at the teachers' union, and other progressive groups. There was one example uh, where the judge asked if the person who signed, who signed the petition had a stroke. Kat Bresler's campaign manager pointed out that the person signed the registration in 1979, and the judge disqualified the signature anyway. So they disqualified 123 signatures, which was just enough to push Kat Bresler underneath the minimum requirement. So now, instead of being able to campaign, she has to appeal the judge's decision and has to spend thousands of dollars to fight the challenge. 
She initially had until Monday, which was yesterday, to find at least 39 of the 123 people who had their signatures invalidated. Then she had to drag them all into court to testify to the judge. But nobody provided her a list of who the people are. And so in order to figure out who the 39 people are of the 123 people were, she had to pay for a court transcript. And that cost her $1,300, right? And that was only part of the fees that she had to incur because these wealthy, moneyed interests were trying to kick her off the ballot. So we don't know uh, what's happening. She had until this morning, and she was, uh, you know, to produce these people. And, you know, she's a school teacher. She was supposed to be at work today. So it's really unfair to working people that these deadlines and these court dates, you know, don't take this into consideration. She was out all last weekend trying to find witnesses willing to go to court or sign affidavits, you know, get them notarized. There are three candidates in this race that were endorsed by the White Plains Democratic City Committee. And those are kind of like the uh, the establishment candidates. You know, Kat Bresler is just a teacher trying to run a city council race on a fixed income, and it's really discouraging. One of the other reasons they had Kat in the crosshairs is because she's a co-founder of People for Bernie, a Bernie Sanders delegate in the Democratic National Convention. Um, After reading this article, I actually spoke today to Patricia Gunning, who is one of the candidates for district attorney here in Rockland County. And she described a scene to me where she had to go through almost exactly the same thing. Except she said that she had to spend $12,000 to withstand the challenge uh, from the other candidates in the race. And so, you know, this is just really just hardball politics when these people are getting lawyers, spending money, challenging petitions... Uh, you know, uh, trying to get signatures thrown out for technicalities, even though you know the signature is the right person. And so we might actually have Patricia Gunning on the show next week. Just a little insight into what goes on, and that's why we have candidates on this program, like when we did interviews with Nicole Doliner and Shenley Vital. It's not just so people listening can learn about Rockland County here in the suburbs of New York. It's because this is going on all over the place, right? You have Democrats that are trying to unseat Republicans. You have establishment Democrats that are part of a a county machine that are um, trying to prevent progressive challengers. You know, somebody from the Bernie camp or the AOC camp from, uh, you know, from getting elected or, or getting on the ballot. And so that is why we're covering this. Okay, we are now going to move on to another story. Next story, see how they rig. Okay, it says, Persuasive Benenson Strategy Group hired by DFER, D-F-E-R, to conduct manipulative push polls, cherry-pick and omit data to arrive at exactly the conclusion DFER wanted. And so what are we talking about here? So DFER is Democrats for Education Reform. This is a very big organization. They have funded Obama. They have funded Hillary. They have funded Cuomo. They want charter schools. Who is DFER? Well, the name is misleading. Democrats for Education Reform are not so many Democrats, actually. They are a bunch of Wall Street hedge funders, pro-charter school, and uh, some of whom are actually Puerto Rico debt vultures. And they want charter schools, and they are opposed to teacher unions. 
Here we see that they hired this Benenson Strategy Group. And what they wanted to do is try to persuade presidential candidates such as Cory Booker, such as Kamala Harris, um, maybe even Amy Klobuchar, right? Amy Klobuchar was just asked by me <laughs> about her uh, position on charter schools. So what Defer wants to do is they want to get some studies out and some white papers and some PR and some lobbying out there, out into the public, to make sure that these politicians feel as though it's okay to support charter school. And so what they did was very manipulative. A great article was written about it by by Kermudgication, uh, a.k.a. Peter Green. This is a teacher, and he's a very alert or very detail-oriented teacher. What he did was, I mean, his article was called Defer Tries to Swing a Primary. And he shows how Defer hired Benenson Strategy Group to conduct these kind of like fake polls. They're called push polls. And he explains how they presented limited results. Okay, I'm going to read from the article. Uh, This is Peter Green. Okay, how about a PR poll? All of this brings us to Defer's newly released polling data. Right now, all we get is this slick pamphlet of results put together by Charles Barone, Dana Lawrence, and Nicholas Munyan Penny. Between the three of them, there's connections to 50CAN, the, the Fordham Institute, Teach for America, and assorted consulting and government jobs. The poll focuses on presidential voters and Democratic primary voters because the target audience is the field of presidential hopefuls and their policy staff. So there's only about 47 people, right? There's about 20-something candidates and, and, their, and their chiefs of staff. The basic message of the document is you should support charter schools because people love them and everybody's happy with them and polls show they're popular, etc. But this poll here was really, really manipulated, okay? First, the Benenson Strategy Group polled 1,004 presidential voters, including 415 Democratic primary voters. They were interviewed by phone at the beginning of last June. They were asked to rate their views on, quote, public charter schools, right? Just like I mentioned before, charter schools love calling themselves public charter schools. They include themselves in public schools. They're not publicly managed. They are privately managed. They are publicly funded. So, you know, you could spend an hour going on, you know, what's the difference between public schools and charter schools. So when they ask these people over the phone, you know, do you support public charter schools? You know, half of them are going to say, sure, I love public schools. What did you say? Public schools? You know, it's crazy. Okay, so that's one way that they rig the polls, but we're, we're nowhere near done. Okay, the respondents were asked to rate their views on a scale from a very favorable to a very unfavorable. 50% of the voters gave charters a very favorable or somewhat favorable rating. Defer combined those two ratings into just one category to massage the data so it looks more favorable. Okay, Democratic primary voters were 51% unfavorable. So they broke that down to further to determine that most of the unfavorable rating comes from white Democrats. This involved breaking the 415 Democratic primary voters into three categories, but they did not release those numbers. Nor do we have a more detailed explanation of the script that was used by the pollsters to get these results. Defer frames it its summary as 
voters of color were more than twice as likely as white Democrats to hold favorable opinions of public charter schools. So you can see, and kudos to Peter Green for really unpacking this. There's a lot more to this, but we're going to move on. Okay, they cherry-picked data. Okay, they, they pulled data from a different survey made by a group called Gen Forward of 1,910 millennials. There's a full survey covering a bunch of questions, but Defer chose to just pick a couple of questions for its report. That is cherry-picking. The survey used two sample sources, including phone and web surveys at the University of Chicago. But the DEFA write-up touts this as the opinions of millennial voters, right? You have to explain, you know, what the polling, you know, situation was. It doesn't say anywhere that these respondents voted in previous elections. And nobody that was 18 years old could have done so. The full survey, Millennials and Public Education in the United States, is pretty hefty, but DEFER pulled just a single response. The majority of Millennials support charter schools, with citizens of color leading the pack again. So it's really just like spinning these stats and spinning these numbers to try to get to a result, you know, that they were uh, hiring this persuasive strategy group for, right? It's not real polls. It's not scientific. Okay, the third thing is is talking about the public dodge, like charter schools or public schools. But you know these are loaded questions, and they're framed you know favorably for a particular outcome. You know it's really shady, and then you know when we look at the Benenson Strategy Group, um, it's not a polling outfit. What they say on their webpage is that they have a reputation as a premier consulting and strategic research firm. They say we help leaders connect with persuade and activate the audiences you need to win. They handle rebranding and building reputation and strengthening trust, okay? So this is not a scientific polling group. And the fact that Defer is out with these white papers and these so-called poll results and everything, it's really just, you know, providing evidence so that presidential candidates can have plausible deniability when they're supporting charter schools, they can say, hey, well, I saw all this evidence here, right? And it's all designed to just be skewed and distorted. You know, it's really sick. The last story we're going to go over here is this. Going on offense, Success Academy Charter School accused of violating federal privacy law, revealing a student's personal information to reporters in response to another got-to-go lawsuit. So this story I just saw today, and um, Success Academy is being sued by a parent who says that Success Academy pushed her daughter out because the daughter was high needs and it was too much of a hassle. They didn't want to deal with it. Uh, You know, she was suspended. She was dropped off at a police precinct. And so there's a lawsuit. Well, Success Academy uh, gave this student's personal information to Chalkbeat, uh, a reporter named Alex Zimmerman, who I spoke to over the phone a couple times, in order to defend their reputation and to try to denounce this mom and this student's claim in the court of public opinion. In doing so, they revealed 
personal, private data about the student, that she had been uh, diagnosed or that she had been suspended or information about her grades or information about her medical condition. Well, I'm sorry, Eva Moskowitz of Success Academy, but you cannot do that. There is a federal statute in place called FERPA, the Federal, federal Education Privacy Records Act, and you're not allowed to do that. She violated that. And so now, with the help of Lena Hampson, who is an anti-charter activist, she also represents uh, Class Size Matters, a great organization, this parent is now going to be filing a FERPA privacy breach complaint against uh, this charter school. So that's only going to add to the contention in the lawsuit. So uh, we wish the parent luck in their lawsuit because basically this is a, a lawsuit based on the fact that these charter schools are cherry-picking students. Okay, that was our headlines. Okay, as I'm talking to you, we are just days following the blockbuster New York Times piece where Donald Trump had his taxes exposed. We have some interesting stuff here about cannabis. Donald Trump said tax evasion was a sport. That was great. The Jerry Falwell stuff. That's really messy. Uh, there's photographs of Jerry Falwell floating around, and Michael Cohen helped him quiet down the person that was uh, leaning on him for money or blackmail. Okay, here's a story. We can get into this interview. This is Jake Jacobs for New York Update, and we're online at nyupdate.org. Today we have on the line Assemblyman Harvey Epstein from the 74th District, and we're going to talk to him about a forthcoming assembly bill that would um, give school districts, that would make school districts discuss their right to opt out. How are you doing today, Mr. Epstein? So, yeah, thank you for taking the time to talk to me, and it's about educating parents about their right about opting out from standardized testing. And it's really just requiring schools to provide information to those parents about that option and before any standardized test happens. So parents can make an informed choice about whether they want their child to take the test or to have them opt out. But really, it's totally the idea of making sure parents are well-informed, which is what we want to do at the state government. Right, and so um, this would be the uh, companion bill to the uh, New York State Senate bill that is already posted online? Right, exactly. Bridge action has been introduced, and we are trying to move the bills together. Great. Um, so one of the provisions in the bill is that uh, school districts uh, do have to notify parents of their rights to opt out. Um, some, there were a couple of other provisions, um, and they kind of protect um, parents or students that opt out from any kind of discrimination. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so if parents make the choice that they want to opt out of taking a parent, like that, the parents shouldn't be fearful that parents you know, they'll be removed from the school. They should not be fearful that their child will be able to get into a school if they want. They have a right to make a decision about helping out. They shouldn't have negative consequences, especially when they opt out. They're going to do alternative assessments to ensure that the child's learning at the appropriate level. This is just about making choices that parents are allowed to make around their education and their child's education. <clears throat> right, and so there's also um, this year we've been hearing about um, schools that ended up on the um, the 
potential closure list or the what they call the CSI list. Um, I think it means the that they're the bottom five percent in the state, but the criteria is kind of like a hidden formula. So I'm I'm not sure what the bottom five five percent of what that exactly means. But we did uh, we did have a couple of schools. Um, that did end up on the list and that had a very, very high opt-out rate. Um, I know in Long Island there was a district where 80% of the kids did not test, and so you had a very uh, small sample size that ended them up on the uh, CSI list. Um, so would this bill also address that? This bill doesn't address that, but it deals with the underlying issue that but okay. So the student can still say, hey, we're concerned about the school, and they can review the school, but then they have to look at the alternative assessments that are available and the alternative assessments that are going on to ensure that the students are learning at a high level. And a lot of the schools where they have high percentages of opting out also have high-performing students, and students are doing well. They're just choosing to do an alternate assessment process instead of taking a standardized test. Okay, and when you say alternative assessment, does that mean uh, that it's locally decided, or is that one of the state-approved uh, assessments? No, the alternative assessments that I dealt with at some groups that my kids have gone through, it's a much more comprehensive uh, approach to learning. It isn't just reading a question and filling in level A through D. It's actually understanding through writing, making sure they can actually write for math, it's doing appropriate math assessment for their grade level. It's a much comprehensive program that teachers are involved in and allows the students to show their work in a much more comprehensive way. It's much more extensive work for teachers because they have to actually review what the students did and then evaluate it. But it's a much better way to assess whether the child's performing or not. Because when you fill in a bubble, sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong. But sometimes you're wrong when you guess right. Right. And this is actually actually learning what the student actually knows so we can accept where they are on their level or their level at a high level. Right. So it sounds like you might be talking about PBATs or performance-based assessments, um, but but I was really just curious whether these are um, kind of like the, uh, you know, the the exact same ones, you know, the shared rubric from the, the Performance Standards Consortium or whether these are developed uh, w within each district. Yeah, so we're not dictating which way the alternative assessments happen, whether I'll follow a standardized formula or a district will make their own choice. We're not requiring that within, within this bill. We're just saying that, that they should be allowed to follow the alternative assessment approach. Right. Okay, I just pause it for a second. Um, the 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 question that that we at, that I just asked him was, um, because the you know he had in this in his uh at least in his assembly version of the bill, he has some uh, alternate assessments being mentioned, um, as part of the legislation apparently, and that was pretty surprising to me. I thought this was just about notifying parents about the right to opt out. But he was actually trying to uh, bake into this um, something else that school districts could potentially use to report student data to the state for their, uh, you know, in, in lieu of taking the state tests. And that would make it, I guess, more palatable for the state, uh, you know, to allow students to opt out of the tests. So 
I'm really seeing some pretty big differences between uh, this bill and the Senate version of the bill, which I read. Uh, it wasn't very long, um, and so you know, so the inter- so the interview got a little interesting. Although it is v- like impossible to hear him in some cases because the phone right. was phasing out. Right, and so um, you know, the what what the state needs from um, each student is, I guess, some kind of score, and. So what you're saying is that if they opt out of the state tests, they can use a more holistic uh, approach and they can just plug in that assessment instead so that the state can still get provided their data? Yeah, exactly right. So that's exactly what the plan so that it will be assessed and they'll be evaluated, but they'll just use a different tool. Right, okay. So um, when it comes to the when it comes to the actual official state tests, um, can you talk a little bit about any potential benefit that that you see students or schools getting, or do you think it's a, just a complete wipeout or a complete wash, you know, and waste of time? Yeah, yeah. for some parents, I feel they really believe in standardized testing and they believe it's really a good pedagogical tool. I just like saying to the parents as someone who's been involved in education for a long time, don't really feel like teaching to the test is a good way for people to learn. I don't think liberal organization is making kids study for it. That's helpful. I think much more creative learning is a much more useful tool. So I, I'm not saying that it, that's what everyone thinks, but so that's why I believe off the on-screen option. But, but for those families in those schools that really believe in standardized testing and that kind of learning process, then that's an appropriate tool. It just has something that, that works for every family. Right, but but there is, you know, and that brings up, you know, the great big disparity that we have in, you know, parents and families across the state. Um, and, you know, one of the major complaints about the tests is that they're not developmentally appropriate for every learner. And so if you have maybe a kid that comes from an educated family and they have three square meals a day and they have a lot of, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, literacy in the home and a lot of, you know, exposure to culture uh, versus, you know, another kid who, uh, you know, is in a fam- you know, big family and the, the mom works, you know, three jobs and they really are just trying to make ends meet. And so, you know, they're, you know the fact that both of those kids take the test across the entire state makes it obvious that some kids are not going to do as well and, you know, and that it's, uh, you know, inappropriate for 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 kids in every situation so um is this bill kind of like saying um you know if you if you're a parent and you feel that that's your situation just opt out and then you can force the school to uh to provide a different assessment to provide the state the data they need the issues you're talking about about race, class, and poverty are you know societal issues that we're grappling with every single day in the state government and obviously standardized testing is just one piece of that. But I do think it gives parents another tool to say, hey, this type of learning doesn't work for me and my family. This type of approach doesn't work. And the issues of, you know, how we have access to education and how we're learning is really important. And we need to learn in a different way. And I don't want you to push the teacher of the test. So I think that's a really important message that we send to parents, but also that we're educating parents on an equal level. Some parents that don't now know about Optia, a lot of parents don't. And it's really incumbent upon the system to educate parents, and that's what we're doing right now. So it allows people who are, you know, I would argue, whiter and wealthier to, to decide they want to engage in Optia, but leaving other families behind. 
if we force every school to educate parents about their options, I think it'll be much more, I think it'll be available to a lot more families in the state. And not every parent, not every family will want Okay, so it's getting a little dicey there, but he said, um, you know, uh, his bill in his in his mind uh, would give parents the option um, to say that these tests are not right for my family, and um, you know, I was trying to get a little detail on him about the alternative assessments and you know what the legislation might say because. You know, I mentioned these set of standards in the Performance Standards Consortium. This this is a a group of about a couple of dozen schools, um, including alternative schools and schools in the city, and that have been free of testing for a while, but only on the high school level. And the consortium has a shared rubric where they have decided that instead of uh, using bubble tests, we can use the students' research and the students' kind of like master work and, a, you know, a portfolio review process to ascertain whether or not they did passing work in this course and what their grade level should be. And, you know, to have that count, you know, in other words, a standard, a rubric, you know, a standard across many schools. So I don't know if he was familiar with that particular reference, but it's it, he's he's talking about the idea, and so I think maybe I was getting a little bit too specific. But this would actually bring up an interesting conflict between the legislature and the state education department. If there was actually a bill that was passed into law that said schools can use this rubric or can use you know whatever rubric they decide instead of the state deciding, well, that's kind of like the heart of the battle here. So let's get back into it, and I'll try to translate when the speech is not very uh, perceptible. So would this, in essence, this would kind of unshackle uh, principals and administrators? Um, right now, it, it seems like they really have to push the test, and they have to, you know, even in some cases, coerce um, students and parents, you know, into taking the test. This would this would allow. Um, uh, principals that maybe have a, a, a different uh, local opinion uh, to, you know, uh, to freely discuss, you, you know, what they feel uh, on the pros and the cons and let the parents make up their own mind? I think that's right. I think that gives power to the principals who want to have options available to them. See, there, I couldn't hear it. Make up I'm their right. own mind? I think that's right. I think that gives power to the principals. Oh, it gives power to the principal. Right. <clears throat> um, do you think that um, there's anything in this bill, because uh, I have heard a critique that, it, that they feel that it might bump up against some federal ESSA regulation, and I think they're specifically there talking about the 95% uh, participation mandate um, that is in federal legislation, but at the same time, there are other parts of the ESSA law that say parents have the right to opt out. So um, this year we have seen, you know, some what looks like retribution. And so, um, you know, what would happen if the opt-out rate went way up and the federal government uh, tried to, um, you know, uh, impose some kind of negative consequence on New York. 
Taking that again here. Just trying to hear what he's saying. To, um, you know, uh, impose some kind of negative consequence on New York. To, um, you know, uh, impose some kind of negative consequence on New York. I agree with you, and it is so contradictory that, you know, they do, in, in two different places, um, reaffirm that a parent has the right to refuse the test, but at the same time, it has a 95% requirement, so it's like, it's only for 5% of parents? I mean, it doesn't, it, you know, those two things don't match, and when, right. when... Right. Ob- it isn't like to say, oh, you have a right to opt out, but only if you're one of the 3% of the parents, but if 6% of the parents opt out, which parents the problem? The one who opted out earlier or later? I think that system that's set up to really injure parents and choices they need to make. And then Obama was in office um, uh, for New York State, they announced famously that there would be no consequences for school districts that had a high opt-out rate, which was a, which was a great relief. Um, but it seems as though they changed that under Betsy DeVos and, and Donald Trump. And they might be, you know, just going state by state and, you know, just kind of negotiating and arm-twisting. But it seems like New York got really the short end of the stick here uh, because Commissioner Elia had already promised parents that the only opt-outs that would count negatively were if the, they were initiated by the school and that parent-initiated opt-outs would not, be, would not have any negative consequences. And so they made a liar out of Elia, um, you know, when she announced the, uh, you know, when she announced the, uh, the, the school closure list and, and that the, uh, participation rate is now a part of that formula. Formula. Okay. I think every 
morning they wake up and say, how can we find people in New York? We can't be driven by their failure to follow appropriate traditional rules. And we continue to say that we believe in that. <clears throat> okay. Um. I. I. Your phone is sometimes getting a little bit muffled, and it's um. And it's a little bit uh, hard to uh to to uh, hear. But uh, hopefully it'll. Hopefully it won't be so bad. Um. Have you had any? Yeah, it it seems like it goes in and out like a like a a muffled phase, and then and then sometimes it's clearer. Um, but uh, my next question is: um, Have you been in communication with the state teachers union about the bill yet? Not yet. Since I saw the bill number yesterday, we haven't been able to do that. Oh, okay. Um, I, I did speak to my local uh, NYSET rep, and they are aware of the Senate version, and he did say that it was very interesting that they're taking a look at it. Um, my hope is that they would get behind it. Um, I happen to feel I'm a, I'm a NYSET member, and I, you know, I feel like they probably do have a lot of clout uh, on something like this uh, if, they were, if they were to get behind it. Um, how, uh, how do you find the, the media... Uh, coverage or non-coverage so far? Yeah, I mean, it's early since we're just introducing it now, but I think we'll get, we've get seen some real positive feedback already, but uh, I, I, I look forward to really kind of doing a big push over the next couple of weeks. Right, okay, so it's got to it's gotta happen pretty quickly, and, um, right. we, we, yeah, so what I, what I hear is that, um, in the Senate Education Committee, there is a meeting next week, and that if it was to be put on the schedule, uh, there would possibly be a vote for the third week of May, and that would give it its best chance. Is it about the same timing in the Assembly? Yeah, I mean, there is a meeting next week, but since we don't have a bill number, there's nothing we can do with that, so we're, we're moving at a slower pace. Right. And um, are you on the edu uh, Assembly Education Committee, or do you know other members? Yeah, I, I I'm sorry, could you say that again? You cut out. Yeah, I'm not on the education committee, but as I said earlier, I did speak to the chair about it. Okay. So we're focusing on uh, making sure he understands the bill, and please uh, make sure this week we can figure out where he is. Great. All right, so for anybody listening, uh, that would be Assemblyman uh, Michael Benedetto. and. uh Right, and so uh, in the in the Senate side, it would be uh, Shelley Meyer, um, and so these are the very consequential uh, respective chairs of the education committees. Are there other uh, key um, legislators that could possibly be contacted if um, activist parents wanted to uh, try to put pressure? I mean, obviously, they should reach out to their own local member, uh -huh. and then folks who who are in leadership is really good to right okay so that would be the usual it would be Andrew Stewart Cousins and Carl Heasty and uh, I guess uh, Senator Janaris and, and folks like that yeah okay great um, uh, before we go um, I asked before you know if you saw any benefit to testing and you, you said that you know some parents may and that you would res respect that you know um, do you do you feel that there is a? Uh, I mean, my my question sometimes is at its at its most basic level is 
who wants the testing, right, from on the policy side. And, you know, my research has shown that, um, you know, there really is kind of like this billionaire class and these kind of like high-tech uh, philanthropy people. Um, you know, you got the uh, Gates Foundation and the Broads and the DeVoses and the Cokes and Waltons and folks like that. And they seem to fund like this whole industry of think tanks and, you know, nonprofits and, you know, and lobbies as well. Do you see the same thing that it's really kind of like this, you know, elite class that is kind of, uh, of non-educators that are kind of trying to push this and have been, and have been doing this all along? That's what I've mostly pushing it. I mean, I've seen very few educators who say this is a priority. I have seen some, but the majority of educators don't. I've, I see the same thing. And, you know, we just gave these tests. We just gave the math test last week. You know, it's the same thing every year. Uh, I teach in the Bronx, and so, you know, there are some kids with challenges there. And, you know, from the first minute they open up, you know, the math book, they get discouraged, and then it becomes a really, really long day, you know, from there on. But, you know, you also see kids sleeping because of the untimed test, and then you see the schools handing out candy, and it's just, there's so many, <laughs> there's so many things wrong from the teacher's perspective. You know, it's really refreshing to see uh, some legislation coming up and us getting a chance to engage with our legislators and have a talk about this. And I think people are reaching out to me and really want to encourage parents and teachers to engage with us because it's an important issue. It's an important issue in the classroom and how the function as a teacher, how students function in the classroom. You need to let us know because it's a really important issue for all of us. Right on, right on. And how old are your kids? Uh, my daughter's at 20 years old, and my son is 14. Oh, okay, so he's just about, well, he's he's almost out of the test, but you've been through it, right? He's in, he, he's in ninth grade now, he's, uh, he's in high saying like they've been through this because these are no child left behind generation kids right and so you've yeah. you've been you've been watching as a parent and now you're actually in a position to try and help so uh, we really appreciate that we've been talking with assemblyman harvey epstein from the 74th assembly district and what is the area uh, of the 74th yeah so, yeah thank you so i represent the east side of manhattan okay from the u.n down to the williamsburg bridge on the east side Great. Oh, wow. A great, great area. And so we thank you. Uh, we will hopefully uh, keep in touch over the weeks and months as we watch the bill progress. Thank you very much, Jake, and I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks. Have a great weekend. Okay. This is Jake Jacobs for New York Update, and we're online at nyupdate.org.